Funeral Blues is a poem that was written by W.H. Alden around 1936. Uh, Some of you may be well familiar with the poem. It's interesting that there's a mystery as to whom he wrote this poem about. Um, It obviously was a time of great sorrow in his life. Uh, W.H. Alden uh, took up many uh, themes in his life. Um, some call him a Christian poet. He's not in a Christian poet in the same vein as some of other contemporary Christian poets that we might know, but he certainly writes of matters of faith and religion and the world and significance as it relates to God. In this passage, however, this poem, there is this haunting of his life that is so evident. Let me just read this for you um, in order that we might understand some of the sorrow that he is dealing with. Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone, silence the pianos and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle, moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message he is dead. Put crepe bows round the white necks of the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west. My working week and my Sunday rest. My noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the woods. For nothing now can ever come to any good. That's a terrible way to end a poem, isn't it? But can you feel the brokenness of his heart? Can you feel that? Have you experienced that in your own life? Have you dealt with death in such a way that you were haunted by its presence? Have you felt that sense of emptiness that you thought, Life would never be the same for you. It may be that you're carrying some of the haunting with you even right now. It is a difficult, difficult matter, which is almost impossible to move beyond. People tell us, and we use it as consolation, time heals all wounds, but oh, it does not heal all wounds. God can work through us to heal wounds, but time itself can find us lingering over and over of the losses that we have experienced. Do you remember that Charles Schultz penned on a daily basis a little cartoon that was entitled Peanuts, and America turned to see what his next Uh, insight would be he created characters that were fascinating and the one that was at the center of the cartoon was charlie brown 
do you remember Charlie Brown's favorite exclamation? Good grief, he would say. Good grief. I don't know, but what Charles Schultz might not have in created that word, uh, those two words for Charlie Brown. I don't know the the origin of good grief, but it's interesting that these two words would stick together in any way. Is there anything good about grief? Is there anything that could be good about grief? Well, let me share with you that John, the writer of Revelation, weighs in on this very topic because he, in exile on the Greek island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, set his pen to writing about this vision of God that had come to him. In the midst of the culture of his day, which was this dark cloud of foreboding, the world seemed to be falling apart, especially for those early Christians who could see very little but gloom and doom on the horizon of their lives. This letter was specifically written to those persons who were beginning to doubt, who were fearful and even dispirited as these early believers in Christ. And John offered to them an opportunity to see differently than they were seeing before. Some of you are well steeped in art, and you know that there came a time about a hundred years ago when modern art took a very interesting turn, and art began to almost be this strange expression of life on canvas. Perhaps the best known cubist painter was Picasso. And you're remembering, even in my mentioning, some of the strange things that he would put on canvas. People contorted in such strange ways and faces that were so awkwardly posed against the scenes in the background, there was almost too much information there. These are the kinds of paintings that people would look at when they first saw them and say, that's not art, that's not art, I know what art is, and that is not art. And yet it persists in speaking to us of depth and of wisdom for those who wish to consider it. And why is that? You know what's going on in the mind of a cubist, don't you? The mind of a cubist is not to paint one side of reality, which we see so very readily as we look out on our lives, but the cubist is intent on painting all sides of reality. So you and I, when we look at each other, if we are seeing the profile of a person, we would see one of their eyes, not the cubist. The cubist sees not only the visible side of the face, but sees the other side of the face too. So it almost looks like flounders there, you know, on the canvas. You see both eyes, but it looks like you're seeing it from this strange, strange perspective. And you are because he's trying to put everything at once down on the page, on the canvas. 
This is an interesting way of presenting things. And really it's exactly, it is exactly what John is doing in his sharing of this vision. Have you ever gone to read the book of Revelation before and found yourself sinking deeper and deeper into the mystery of what was going on there? Have you found yourself absolutely spinning out and saying, this is just plain weird? Have you said that to yourself before? It is one strange book. But let me tell you, that John is trying to give us more reality than you and I lend ourselves to. He is trying to tell us not only this side of the vision, but the other as well. And as we look into these words, if you look carefully, you can begin to see this word of prophetic hope, these seven churches, these four horsemen, this beast, this lamb on the throne, these wonderful seals, this new Jerusalem that is making its way into our minds and into our hearts and ultimately brings us home to God in a different way. This is why he sent it out, in order that others who were in such dire circumstances would believe there's got to be something else going on here. Christ is calling us to this grand hope. Uh, This past spring, Jonathan and I taught a class on Wednesday nights uh, that was an opportunity for us to look at a little workbook of sorts. It's interesting. It was written a number of years back by Daniel Erlander. And Daniel took the whole of the Bible and considered it from a justice perspective. He named the book Manna and Mercy. But what really entertains me about this little book is the biphrase that is a part of the title because he calls it Manna and Mercy, a brief history of God's unfolding promise to mend the entire universe. Let me say that again. Manna and mercy, a brief history of God's unfolding promise to mend the entire universe. You and I have such a perspective as to focus only on what's going on at this moment in our lives. It is very infrequent that you stand before someone who is thinking about what God is doing in the larger perspective of mending the entire universe. But that is what John is doing here in the writing of Revelation. He's asking the question, are we to consider only the fact that Christians are being killed? Are we to here consider only the fact that those that we have loved have passed on? Are we to be consumed by grief or is there any such thing as good grief? Is there a larger perspective of what God might be doing in our lives? Christ is calling us into this grand hope. In fact, when Jesus spoke to his disciples at the first of his ministry, they came to him and said, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples to pray, Jesus thought to himself, I'll do you one better. I'll teach you how I pray. And so pray like this. Oh, God, may your kingdom come on earth 
as it is in heaven. And how is it in heaven? Well, see, that's what we're coming around to. Some people come up with such limited visions of God's grace. Have you ever talked with someone who has bridled resurrection to the point that they think that they know the actual number of people that will be saved? It says it in the scriptures, they say. They say it says it right there. It is numbered. In fact, it occurs in this same chapter out of which this passage comes that we've read today. In the fourth verse, it says, and I heard that the number of those who were sealed one hundred forty four thousand sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. And I've heard people say, you know, there are only going to be one hundred forty four thousand that make it. You may have heard that before. I don't know what kind of logic gets them there. And except for the fact that they're trying to read something that's not intended here. You know what 144,000 is, don't you? Maybe not. Let me tell you what 144,000 means here. From my perspective and from what I have read is that this is a number of perfection. The number 12 multiplied by the number 12 multiplied by the number 1,000, which is a big number, gives you 144,000. Now, those who aren't in the know might say to themselves that this is a book that is not cryptic. It tells us exactly, exactly what God is going to do. And God is going to, some way, he is going to save only 144,000. Now, that worries me just a little bit. It may not worry you. It worries me just a little bit because I begin to ask myself the question, okay, do I fit in? I mean, how many more do we have to go, you know? Do I fit into that 144,000? And better yet, do those people that I love, those people in my family, fit into that kind of figure? Now, I think these are the same kind of people that look to the Scripture and are actually counting out Jesus in other ways. You know, when Jesus says, well, you know, when he was asked, do we forgive seven times? Oh, you forgive seven times 70. And so they're thinking to themselves, 490. But I know this one guy that has really tested me. And he's up to 483 now, you know. <laughs> he's getting mighty close to that top figure. And so it means when I get to that top figure, then I stop forgiving the guy, you know. Do you think that's what Jesus was talking about? Jesus was saying, you never stop forgiving, right? You never stop forgiving. When we get this figure here in Revelation, we're talking about a number of infinity. There is no limit to it. There is no, and I can give you the evidence behind why I believe this. These are infinite numbers that are being brought to us. And that is because in the ninth verse that Hannah read so well for us just a few moments ago, she spoke these words. After this, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count. That no one could count. We are so exclusive about who God can love and who God can't love. That no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, standing before the throne 
a lifting back of the veil of heaven. What do you see? You see all these ethnicities that we might not have thought were going to be there in the first place. You pull back the veil and look into heaven and you see these cultures and hybrids that we think to ourselves, can this be, can this be? This grand mixture of God's people. And why? Because of something they did. You see, this is the mistake of thinking that this day is about these persons that we have honored by the reading of their names. It's not because of something they did that we've honored them today. It's because of what Christ has done. There is no way for us to come into the presence of God but by the blood of Christ. I keep hoping that a Methodist will say amen to something that I'm preaching today. <laughs> I know that we probably got a few Baptists and a few Episcopals and others mixed in the, in the sanctuary today. But come on, be with me here. This is, this is incredible that God is doing his saving work to pull us in to his presence. His grace is at work, bringing us there. Amen. Salvation. I'm, this, this is wonderful. Do you, you know what this, this unlimited number that were gathered, this multitude that were gathered beyond what anyone could count? You know what they were crying, don't you? They were crying these words. Salvation belongs to our God. Why? Because he's the one that does it. It is not we who bring ourselves to salvation. It is something that God does for us. And you and I want to be participants in that, don't we? Which is what Jesus was getting at when he said, pray this prayer, that the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be participants in what God is doing. Let me tell you that one of my favorite moments in worship it's on Christmas Eve. Do you show up for Christmas Eve communion? Christmas Eve communion, we gather in. In fact, we pack the sanctuary out generally. And then at the end of the service, we always sing Silent Night. I think they do this in every congregation, maybe. I don't know. But we pass out candles to those that are present. And then we, at the end of the service while we're singing Silent Night, we pass the flame one to the other to the point that everyone in the sanctuary has a candle that they have lit right before them. Now, for those that are here, you can't see the significance of it. But I get to see it all. I'm up here. I'm up here. And I get to see the beauty of this because I can see the whole congregation is lit. Their faces are lit. It's almost like halos are glowing, you know. And it's this beautiful thing, this reminder, the congregation becomes the metaphor. That Christ's light is what we are reflecting. And this is the way that it should be on All Saints Day. It's not so much about what we've done or what members of our family have done. And I have to tell you, there's some scoundrels in my family. Do you have any scoundrels in your family? I'm grateful that it's not about what they've done, but it is about what God is doing. God's gathering us in. And this changes my perspective on everything when I get this right, when I keep this in my mind. Because I know, I know that it is this prophetic hope 
this prophetic hope that truly God unfolding promise before us is to mend the entire universe. Now, this is the story of Revelation, but I can tell you that this is a story not so much about death as it is about resurrection. Resurrection. 